Hello and welcome to this episode of Irreligiosity 2.0, the one true podcast. And the only podcast whose uh, corkscrew-shaped penis explodes to its full... 20 centimeters of glory. 20 centimeters of glory. <laughs> That's impressive. That's right. Mine just did. <laughs> it is. Uh, I think so. Before we get to uh, the corkscrew-shaped meat of the podcast, Matt, I wanted to bring yes. up one iTunes review. Oh, an iTunes review. Do, do, do. do it. Do you remember when we were complaining that we got no reviews about the sound of our voice? I remember that. I was always saying that, like, nobody ever comments on the sound of my voice. Just the two sexiest voices on the air, basically. A five-star review by Suze. I've listened to this podcast Suze? since 2011, and what keeps me coming back is Chuck's super sexy voice. I can't actually hear Matt's voice because it's too high-pitched, but my dog gets excited whenever he talks, so I've always assumed he has a sexy voice, too. How about that? Hey. Dogs like me. Sexy voices. Dogs and ducks, I think. Sexy dogs. I get along with them well. We uh, we hang out, you know what I'm saying? You don't know what I'm saying. saying. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I'm saying. (laughs) I do not fuck dogs. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Shall we dick some skunks? Yes, let's get dicked. What do you got? I got, um, you know how, like, you got those stupid kids on skateboards? You know, they're skateboarding all over, and you're like, you damn kids! Yeah, and you want to just go punch them and take their skateboard away? Oh, every day. You know how that is? Yeah. All the time. But then you don't, because you live in a society, and you think, maybe I shouldn't do that. But if God tells you to do it, Chuck... <laughs> that's okay. That's when you go do it. You get If you get permission from the almighty... Lord of the Universe to beat the shit out of some kid on a skateboard. How can you say no? Yeah. So Thomas Hammer, Thomas the Hammer, Hammer, and he's an Orange County, uh, this is in California, elementary school teacher. Uh, some skateboarders, by the way, in front of a, in front of a skate shop. Nice. <laughs> They're in front of the skate shop. Nicely done. And he uh, he went over. Yeah, he went over and uh, took their skateboard away. Tried to throw it on a on a balcony. Uh, but he had this to say: When I stepped in, I felt compelled by a higher by a higher power. Honestly, honestly, have, he's saying honestly now. Have you ever been grabbed by the Lord in a way you never thought you would? Are or you, you Catholic? Could? <laughs> then yes, uh, several times. Absolutely, I have been grabbed by the Lord in a way I never thought I would or could. <laughs> That's right. And in case. You were thinking he was just being hyperbolic. He said, that's exactly what I'm testifying to. And I'm not speaking in hyperbole. I'm speaking right from the heart. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that convinces me. Skip the polygraph. He's telling the truth. Felony charge of stealing property dismissed. (laughs) Uh, Even though he was caught on video. I don't think this has anything to do with any anger management problems. Uh, except that he had recently finished serving a two-month suspension stemming from his August 2013 arrest on charges of assault with a deadly weapon and taking property. That's so <laughs> right. did the Lord, did the good Lord of the universe, the peaceful, meek, cheek-turning Lord of the universe also tell him to uh, assault with a deadly weapon at that time? 
Probably. Inquiring minds want to know. Yeah. Um, so when he went, he was, uh, so he's a teacher. Sorry, you say what? he was an elementary <laughs> school teacher? <laughs> he's a teacher. So he was placed on administrative leave, but he could still, he was brought back to, to the school in a non-classroom sport role. So about 20, uh, it doesn't say exactly, something like 20, 25 students were kept home by their parents in response. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, skunk dick Thomas the Ham Hammer. Good call. Uh, my candidate, the next candidate, uh, is Evangelist Benny Hinn. Has he ever been a skunk dick candidate? I can't remember. It's been so long. Benny Benny Hinn? I love that guy's show in like the 70s and 80s. Yeah. The, that guy's hilarious. I think he's patented that helmet oh, wait, no. that he's got. Wait, you're talking about Benny no, Hill? sorry. I was thinking of Benny, Benny Hill, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Benny Hinn. <laughs> Evangelist and faith healer Benny Hinn. So, Matt, you might be surprised that Benny Hinn has made an appearance here on uh, the Skunk Dick of the Week. But, you know, you realize Benny Hinn is worth $42 million, apparently. $42 million. Uh, He flies a fucking private jet to these evangelical things he puts on that you have to pay money, of course, and you fill stadiums, right? Oh, sweet. Is it a G5? What is it? It's it's probably one of those fucking galactic uh, space cruisers. We got to spend money to make money for Jesus. He says, I've believed in seed faith giving for decades. Seed faith giving. Does that make any fucking sense to you? Does it? Are these people speaking in English? This is this is scam speak. This is multi-level marketing. <laughs> I've believed in seed faith giving for decades, and I've seen it work time after time. Uh, but where do you get this $1,000 teaching? Because he, now he, he's asking them to give a 1000 to Step up to the next level, fuckers. You're not giving me enough. I'm not worth enough money. Now you need to give me $1,000. Where do you think he got this idea from, Matt? I bet it's just one of those arbitrary numbers. It just sounds good. 1000 G. Well, you might think he got it from the Bible, but uh, apparently it was from financial teacher Todd Kuntz and his $1,000 principle. Ah, how convenient. (laughs) He told me there's something very special about the number 1,000 and the miracles he has seen when people cross that line in giving. So so this is their their line, right? This is their scam. Give me lots more money and then the Lord will bless you. This imaginary invisible being will bless you. How about what I'd like to see these guys say is don't give the money to me. Give the thousand dollars to your favorite charity and then the Lord will bless you. Yeah. No, I'd that's love not going to happen. see that just once. So if people, if people give $999, they won't get the, uh, they, they won't, won't get go the, to the new dimension of favor <laughs> and increase. Takes, takes thousand to get to that new dimension. Okay. All right. I love, by the way, that this article is in the Christian Post, and even they're skeptical. <laughs> Don't do this. He's an idiot. Hinn, who is a, reportedly has a net worth of $42 million, also has been criticized and investigated by numerous news organizations for his reported faith healings. And they've got a picture of his website at the bottom, and it says, Feed the Hungry, Hope Seed, $30. How much of that $30 do you think is going to go to feed the fucking hungry instead of feeding fucking Benny Hinn? <laughs> $2. Portion seed. Double for your trouble. That's $200. Wait a second. Next step up. <laughs> Wait a second. 30 or 200. <laughs> that that's not double portion. That's breakthrough seed is $273 seed and the Weird. triple favor seed is uh, $1000. The triple favor seed. If you come in the favor. 
Wait, so 200 to 273? What the hell is that about? Where did he, <laughs> where did he get that? I'm, I'm sure it's not random. He probably has an entire department filled with statistics showing that uh, lots of people will favor the breakthrough seed. Expect supernatural change within 90 days for 273. <laughs> it's such a bargain over just double for your trouble. Right, right. Now I see it. I'm sure it has nothing to do with some sort of weird like advertisement study where they say, you know, uh, if you raise it in these weird increments like that, you can actually get higher donations at, at certain amounts. <laughs> Triple favor seed. Become one of the favor 12. I don't know what that means. And, and again, I'm not sure they're speaking English, but there you have it. <laughs> Is Benny that- Hinn asking supporters, even though he's worth 42 fucking million dollars, to take $1,000 out. You know, and most of these people who follow Benny Hinn, right, they're not young people. These are old people on a fixed fucking right. income. But yeah, go ahead. Donate that to Benny fucking Hinn. $42 million. You know how many times he could donate $1,000? I wonder how many times he has uh, gone to that next level of favor and increase <laughs> and given someone else $1,000. Well, a lot, Chuck. He's worth $42 million. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> he, must, he, must, he must be doing it every week. Must be. What else you got? Well, Chuck, uh, when Jesus comes back... And he will. Uh, what do you think he'll be carrying? <laughs> My guess is a pastrami on rye. Oh, that sounds delicious. Um, I was going to say a basket of goodies, which could be a pastrami on rye. I was going to say, if you're uh, resurrected from the grave, the first thing you want is some food. Yeah. Yeah, you're like, like somebody give me a sandwich. Yes, um. <laughs> he's pissed off this time. What's why? What's he's bringing? He's not bringing a pastrami. He wasn't too angry when he came back in the in Jerusalem, but uh, when he came back in the Americas, Jesus Christ, was he pissed? What is he bringing? He is going to be coming back with an AR-15 assault rifle, just like it says in the New Fucking Testament. <laughs> I just coughed. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. This is uh, the Family Research Council's Jerry Boykin. He's speaking at the Wall Builders pro-family legislators conference. So, you know, when you're talking about uh, pro-family legislation, it's got to be Jesus coming back carrying an assault rifle. Well, if it's pro-family, it can't be bad. That's probably why we can't put any restrictions on guns, because then Jesus, you know, only criminals will have guns. Jesus won't be able to come back with an assault rifle. Well, the only person that can stop a bad guy with a gun is Jesus with an AR-15. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And in Revelation 19, it says when he comes back, he's coming back as what? A warrior, a mighty warrior leading a mighty army, riding a white horse with a blood-stained white robe. And I don't know about the theologians, and I was at Dallas Theological Seminary yesterday, and I said, I'm not going to argue theology with you folks, but I believe that blood on, on that robe is the blood of his enemies because he's coming back as a warrior carrying a sword. And I believe now, I, I, I've checked this out, I believe that sword he'll be carrying when he comes back is an AR-15. <laughs> and, it, and the sword today is the AR-15, so if you don't have one, you go get one. You're supposed to have one, it's biblical. If you don't have one, Matt, go get one. Get an AR-15 right now, it's I, biblical. I'm going. It's biblical. Just says, sell, sell your cloak and get yourself a fucking assault rifle. <laughs> With an extended magazine clip. You know, they still have swords. 
He could still come back with a sword. You remember when Peter shot off that guy's ear with an assault rifle? Uh, yeah, but it was only a semi-auto, so... That's why he stopped at the ear. Uh, yeah. All right, let's feed that into the uh, computer. I'm going to go with Clive and Bundy. Clive and Bundy? <laughs> Just because we haven't heard anything from him recently in the news. I kind of miss that racist bastard. Oh, what if he, what if he, uh, what if he wins? That'd be great. Um, I, I like the guy that attacks the skateboarders because that's that's one of my fantasies. Just gonna go after those kids <laughs> attacking teenage skateboarders. <laughs> Careful, you'll shake some weed loose. <laughs> oh, it's like a pinata. And then we gather it all up. The computer says Ken Ham. Jesus Christ, what? this fucker has been on uh, Skunk Kick no. Week a lot. A no. lot. No What's Ham. What's his jersey number, man? What is his jersey number? We're going to have to retire this shit. <laughs> Ken Ham. He's got the four or five by now. Matt, uh, as a regular follower of Around the World with Ken Ham, I'm sure oh, yeah. you notice the erosion of God's word. It's catastrophic. I get that as an email document every week. I love it. Ken Ham is is aghast uh, because there's a a new poll out showing that um, more people over the last 20, 25 years consider the Bible to be a, quote, book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. Well, uh, got news for you, Ken. That's what it is. I I don't know if it has any moral precepts, but I'll give you the rest of it. Oh, it's got moral precepts in there. They just don't agree with current morality. In 1984, just 12% of the people held such views of the Bible. Today, 21% hold, oh my God, that's nine more percent. That's one in five Americans. Wait, is that right? So he did, yeah, that's pretty right. That's mostly roughly right. Speaking, roughly yeah. speaking. He can do math. All right. Damn but sadly, <laughs> this false idea of God's word isn't just from the secular world, Uh-oh. where we know, you know, the, the church knows that it's a world mad by sin. Unfortunately, there are many Christian academics and church leaders who take a similar position about certain portions of the Bible, especially Genesis chapters 1 through 11 in this era. Ken Ham is feeling crowded out by smart people. Yes. <laughs> oh my God, I'm surrounded by smart people. Oh, is it is it because of the indoctrination and the belief of evolution? Probably. Because of the indoctrination and the belief of evolution in millions of years through the education system and the media. God damn that education system. <laughs> Fucking education! Many people believe that Genesis 1 through 11 cannot be taken as literal history. I love it. I love he says because people are learning. They're not <laughs> believing this crap. Stop confusing people with facts and reality. Oh. Now, Matt, yeah. that brings us to the meat of this podcast where we're going to continue banging that secular drum of evolution and millions of years with Woo-hoo. the five biggest dick moves of evolution. Wait, <laughs> All right. Wait, the five biggest evidences. And I use evidences you told purpose. me you told me not to use evidences. I use evidences on purpose because it's what a lot of creationists do. They say evidences for creation. 
because it's it's more than one, Matt. Okay. <laughs> so it's got to be plural. Isn't evidence already plural? I don't know. Uh, yes. Hence the joke. Ah! Wait, are they playing the joke on us? Or are we just we, joking? Maybe they're being really sarcastic. <laughs> I've got some evidences for you stupid secularists. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. Uh, dear God, the five biggest evidences for evolution. I've chosen these pretty much at random and by popular vote. So you know they're the five biggest ones. Random out of popular vote or at yes. random and then you let A people A combination of completely random process and an argumentum ad populum. Oh. So you're saying selection was a component of your process. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. What should we do first? Um, how about endogenous retroviruses? I'm sticking pretty much – well, I've got two molecular uh, – actually, three, right? Because you're doing the chromosomes. Yeah. And so we got three molecular evidences and then one fossil and one – because it's irreligiosity, one yeah. penis-related evidence. Excellent. Let's start with endogenous retroviruses. So those are the retrovices, retro, retrovices, retroviruses that are kind of like they're not male, they're not female, they're kind of like both. <laughs> oh no, I'm sorry, that's androgynous retrovices. Never mind, I was thinking of something else. My God, it's so late! It's so late. <laughs> I found that funny. It was funny. <laughs> All right, so what is an endogenous retrovirus? A retrovirus itself is an RNA virus that replicates itself by reverse transcripting its RNA genome into DNA. So remember, Matt, the uh, grand rule, the prime directive of biology is that DNA goes to RNA, which goes to proteins, right? Okay. So this, uh, the genome of this virus is actually RNA, and it has an enzyme that actually uh, reverse transcripts that RNA into DNA. And then it takes that DNA and it randomly inserts it into its host that it's infected. That way, the host does all the hard work of replication and the virus doesn't have to carry around all that uh, genetic machinery, right, that you need for replication to unzip the DNA and uh, uh, replicate every shit, right? That's bullshit. Occasionally... (laughs) Retroviruses uh, insert themselves into the germline of a host organism. It's a sperm or the egg cells. And, and when that happens, they are passed down to descendants, right? Human right. beings carry approximately 30,000 endogenous – the word endogenous just means inside ourselves, basically. I, I knew that. I knew that. So uh, human beings carry approximately 30,000 endogenous retroviruses. Those are ERVs uh, collected over the years from prior germline infection. So – uh, first of all, if we carry 30,000 endogenous retroviruses, how is that possible if the Earth is only 6,000 years old? Aha! So Man, I find that hard to believe. It's not possible then. So evolutionary theory predicts then that closely related organisms will share more ERVs than distantly related organisms. And further, that phylogenetic trees can be constructed based on these shared ERVs. So you can take uh, these ERVs and construct, like, you can say, you know, oh, we're more closely related to orangutans, for example, as humans than we are to dogs, right? Right. So here again, we've got a prediction that can potentially falsify the entire theory of evolution. And this prediction involves genetic information that was unknown at the time of Darwin. 
it involves species that we didn't even know existed until recently, right? So what do we find when we look at the data? It, does it support a creationist view <laughs> or does it support the evolutionary view? I bet it doesn't support I'm the I'm going to tell you, the chance of a human, for example, and a chimpanzee sharing the same retrovirus at the same location, right, by, just by random chance, two identical retroviruses randomly inserting themselves at the same position uh, in both a chimpanzee and a human, absurdly low. Uh, there are three billion base pairs in human DNA and roughly the same uh, for chimpanzees, right? right. So a, a retrovirus can insert itself between any of those base pairs. So chimpanzees, like other non-human primates, have 24 chromosomes to R23. You'll get to that. Yes. Um, Wait for so, so they'd have to choose not only the same chromosome, but the same part of the same chromosome. So that's roughly a one in three billion chance for each retrovirus, and humans and chimps share seven of them. So that's one in three billion times one in three billion times, you know, raised to the seventh power, if I got my math correct. Well, it's far less than zero. The primate primate phylogenetic tree constructed by ERV insertions matches up exactly with phylogenetic trees based on shared physical traits and phenotypes as well as other DNA evidence, right? Such as shared pseudogenes or line segments. And this all provides independent confirmation of evolution and common descent. So keep in mind, it didn't have to happen this way, right? You wouldn't expect it to happen if evolutionary theory weren't true. If if it weren't true, if if evolution wasn't an accurate reflection of what happened in the past, you'd expect all these independent lines of evidence, right? The ERV insertions, the pseudogenes, the line segments, to all point in random directions and be a total jumbled mess. That's not what we see. They all, independent of each other, point to the same phylogenetic tree and that same confirmation of the theory of evolution. Nice. I like it. So endogenous retroviruses, and I love using this because, A, it sounds really sciencey, Matt. What do you think about endogenous retroviruses? And and no one outside of science knows about them. And number two, creationists love throwing all these statistics. Oh, the chance of a cell randomly coming together. Uh, The chance of all seven of these ERVs shared between chimpanzees and uh, humans, astronomical. The, the, the only bad thing about this is it'll go right over certain creationist heads if you pull well, it out. You, then you also get a little humiliation, too, if you've got a it, – it's best done in front of a crowd of people. Right. If you say, well, you know, how do you explain endogenous retroviruses, shared endogenous retroviruses between, say, chimpanzees, orangutans, uh, gorillas, and humans? And they look at you like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> uh-huh. Fuck you. That's right. Kiss it. Love it. Well, Matt, on to you. What's your uh, – what do you got? What's your um, evidence – evidences for evolution? I have I have two evidences I'll be evidencing tonight for. <clears throat> the first let's, one, though. Let's start with one. Yeah, let's start with one of them. Let's see if I can get it out. Uh, this is science. Not exactly my forte, but I'm going to give it a shot. What? You're an anthropologist. <laughs> That's supposed to be sarcasm. Public speaking is not my forte. <laughs> or private speaking. The university sarcastically handed you the anthropology degree. Oh, this will be a good one. When they gave it to me, they go, they said, they said here you go. You earned it. <laughs> <laughs> Wink. What do you got? Anyway, I have chromosomal fusion. It's chromosomal fusion? fusion? 
Yes. It's impossible. It's not the latest cooking fad. No. It's the fusion of chromosomes. What is a chromosome? Is it nobody knows, actually. It's just this thing we made up. <laughs> Fucking magnets. <laughs> How do they work? <laughs> anyway, you uh, most people know what they are. I'm gonna explain it anyway, because you need a little bit of background to understand what is going on here. But basically, chromosomes are thread-like structures. They contain a single strand of the DNA molecule. And it, that is itself wrapped around a protein called a histone that supports the structure. Got it? Yeah, you got it. Um, so they have a constriction point, chromosomes. And um, it's not in the middle. It just sounds like it is. It's called the centromere. And two endpoints are called the telomeres. Or perhaps it's telomeres. I'm just going to pronounce it all wrong anyway. But So centromeres, they help keep chromosomes properly aligned during uh, cell division. And as, they, as chromosomes are copied, um, the centromere also serves as an attachment site for the two halves of each replicated chromosome. Uh, they, they form little arms, the chromosome does, with the centromere. And uh, like I said, it's not right in the middle. So there's a shorter arm and a longer arm. P is the shorter arm, and they call the longer arm Q. You don't really need to know that, but it's going to help a little bit later when we go a little bit deeper into this. Now, as for telomeres, uh, those are basically just repetitive stretches of DNA located on the ends of chromosomes. And you you might have heard this before, but they basically protect the ends of chromosomes uh, some other way that, like, say, the tips of shoelaces keep them from falling apart. Got it? You have shoelaces, Chuck. Do you not? That's a nice metaphor. Yeah, I like it. It's it's so overused, though, that I was trying to find a different one. I failed. Like a knot at the end of a rope. Yes. Like when you cut a piece of nylon rope and then you get a little lighter out and burn it to melt you it. Burn the shit out of it? <laughs> That's a telomere. That's a telomere. Now, telomeres lose a bit of that DNA. Every time the cell divides, and eventually when all the DNA is gone, they can't replicate, and the cell dies. That's, that's not important to our discussion, but it, it's, it's just fun to know. Maybe that's cancer. Who knows, Chuck? You'll just, but you'll just throw that in anyway. <laughs> I am. I'm going to throw in a lot of shit. Okay, so what's all this about? What's the point of this? Well, what we, is all this about, <laughs> for God's sake? I'm getting to it. This, one, this episode is called Chromosomes and Everything You Didn't Want to Know. Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> so to get to the fucking point, um, like we said, humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes. But our closest living ancestors, uh, chimpanzees, gorillas, they have 24 pairs. Explain that, Chuck. Why? Now, see, this initially would be a disconfirmation of evolutionary theory, right? Exactly. Because what the shit? What, what, we deleted an entire chromosome? That doesn't seem likely. We don't suffer deletions of genetic information, especially that magnitude at all. That's, that typically ends up in death, right? Right. We, we tolerate duplications a lot better than we tolerate deletions. So if, we're, if our closest relatives in the primate family has uh, 24 pairs of chromosomes, why don't we have 24 pairs? Well, the idea is that we share a common ancestor, right? And that we, when we branched off from that ancestor, we must have lost a pair. So what happened to it? That's right. We would have died if if we lost an entire pair of chromosomes. So what the fuck happened to the missing chromosome? Well, if you take a close look at our genome and the genomes of our closest relatives, it reveals that we didn't lose anything, but the two chromosomes have fused. Bullshit. Uh, no. They're all specially designed. <laughs> I'm serious. This fusion occurs as sperm and eggs develop. 
And as pairs of chromosomes fold over each other and swap chunks of DNA, you know, like you do when you're getting busy. Sounds um, dirty. It's, it is. Um, sometimes two different chromosomes grab on each other and they fail to separate. Just like a Catholic priest and his altar boy. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> they eventually separate. <laughs> <laughs> After a prolonged period of coupling, they do eventually separate. You're so right. You... <laughs> I take I withdraw the metaphor. Good. So if we look at the distinctive structure of the chromosome, we compare human to ape, and we compare that all the chromosomes are numbered. Basically, we find that humosome, human chromosome, that's what they should be called, humosomes. Human chromosome 2 uh, bears the evidence, basically, of an ancient chromosome fusion. So here's the evidence. This is going to get deep, so you might need to take notes. So if you take the analogous chromosomes in the non-human great apes and you lay them end to end, you can see an identical banding structure to human chromosome number 2. Uh, the remains of the sequence that the chromosome has on its ends, the telomere, is found in the middle of humosome chrome 2, where the ancestral chromosomes fused. Got it so far? Basically, you, what you you've got is telomere, centromere, telomere, telomere, centromere, telomere. Yes. Exactly what you would expect if two chromosomes fused end to end. Right. And you can, you can actually – you can see this uh, basically if you lay them side by side. You can you – can, Literally see it. Um, the centromere of human chromosome 2 lines up with the chimp chromosome 2P, which says you remember the P was the shorter, longer arm, Chuck? Uh, P comes before Q, so I'm going to go with shorter arm. Yes, correct. And at the uh, place where we expect it on the human zone, we find the remnants of the chimp 2Q centromere, which is the longer arm. Now, not only is this strong evidence for a fusion event, but it's also strong evidence for commas ancestry. And in fact, there's really hard to explain this by any other mechanism. Right, because it's the same fucking set of chromosomes. Right. And so you, what I would love to know, and I've, I've done this for, for all, all of these, um, I would love to know the creationist explanation. Usually they back up to the fall, right? Well, Adam ate the apple, and so therefore we got an extra set of telomeres and centromeres in chromosome two. It's a natural outgrowth of the flood model theory. I would, I would love to hear the explanation from a creationist point of view of why we have uh, an extra set of telomeres and centromeres in chromosome two that just ha- coincidentally happened to match up with chimpanzee and other primate DNA. I they got something. So let me, let me explain. No, wait. Let me sum up. There's you too just, much. Oh, okay. So you just <laughs> did explain. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was trying to make a Princess Bride joke. There's too much. Let me sum up. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, telomeric and pre-telomeric sequences are normally found only on chromosome ends. However, in human chromosome 2, the evidence for chromosome fusing is that there is a pre-telomeric sequence, a telomeric sequence, an inverted telomeric sequence, and an inverted pre-telomeric sequence in that order in the middle of the chromosome. Human chromosome 2 centromeres at the same place as the chimpanzee chromosome 2P, as determined by sequence. And even more telling is the fact that on the 2Q arm of human chromosome 2 is the unmistakable remains of the original chromosome centromere of the common ancestor of human and chimp 2Q chromosome at the same position as the chimp 2Q centromere. See? This is all <laughs> new research, by the way. 20, 30 years ago, 
We didn't know any of this stuff, right? This happened in the last 10 or 15 years. Again, these are predictions that are made. The scientists can look at this shit and say, look, there's no way that we deleted an entire chromosome. So that chromosome's got to be there, probably has to be fused somewhere. And then you start looking for the sequences and you find it. This is a prediction of evolutionary theory. You uh, come up with an explanation before it's found, and then you find it, again, confirming evolutionary theory. The, the, the likes of which never happens in creationist models. No, no. Remember how like scientific theories are always replaced with a uh, supernatural explanation? Yeah, every time. <laughs> like all the time. That's like always happening. So that one's a, a great one um, to bring out at parties. Hey, creationist assholes, what do you think about the chromosome 2 fusion in humans? Right. As evidence of common ancestry. Oh, that's not fusion. That's just God's glue, man. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what they'd say. I can't even, I can't even think of why a, a common designer would make it look so much like evolution. <laughs> they'd probably say something like, that's, that's loss of information. Isn't that exactly the opposite of what evolution says would happen? No new information. No loss of information. It's just fused. <laughs> But the number is less. 23 is less than 24. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next example is pseudogenes. This is a, um, a favorite one of mine, too. Uh, we've gone over it briefly before. Uh, a pseudogene is a vestigial structure at the molecular level, right? So it's oh, junk DNA. The non-functioning <laughs> remnant of a once-functional gene that suffered a mutation that, that uh, inactivated it, right? So note, by the way, that vestigial structure is defined in its usual sense, in the usual sense of the word, as a vestige of a previously functional structure. Right, uh, yeah. Creationists typically use vestigial as something that has no function at all, right? Right, it's a, right. It's a straw man. What they do is they set up the argument that it has no function. They show there's a function. There you go. It's not vestigial. But it doesn't have its original function, right? So there may be a pseudogene that, that has some other function, but it doesn't have the original function of the original gene. And uh, I think the vast majority of these are non-functional anyway. They're not transcribed. Just to jump on vestigial. Yeah, that is one of my, that is one of my pet peeves when you use vestigial. And people say, that's ah, not useless. Look, it still does something. Yeah, please, wrong. Please explain vestigial to them, to those people. <laughs> right. Vestige. Vestige. So some pseudogenes may perform some function, just not the original function of the original gene. Um, but the vast majority of these pseudogenes are not transcribed. They, they never go and make a, a protein out of them. So they are junk DNA. Examples of pseudogenes include the vitamin C pseudogene. This is my favorite. Like I said, it's the uh, L-Golono-Gamma-Lactone oxidase uh, or GLO-GLO, the GLO pseudogene. Nice. Uh, found in primates and guinea pigs. So that's another conversation stopper, too. Hey, what do you guys think of the L-Golono-Gamma-Lactone oxidase, huh? Huh? How about that? Who's going to remember that? People are going to have to carry, like, index cards around with them. <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> just, just in case that conversation comes up. Uh, so this pseudogene has all of the information required to synthesize vitamin C so that we wouldn't have to ingest it, right? But it's non-functional. It's been knocked out. In humans, there's a single base pair deletion that causes the reading frame to shift. Matt, 
you might recall from our wildly popular episode on abiogenesis. Abiogenesis, yes. That DNA is read in a frame of triplet base pairs, right? So AGG codes for one amino acid, CTC codes for another, et cetera, et cetera. Now imagine you're reading the DNA in, in groups of three base pairs, uh-huh. and one of the letters is deleted, right? So from that point onward, the reading frame shifts, and all you'll get is random amino acids instead of the intended protein sequence that's been honed by natural selection. So, so if you've got a sequence that's going to say AGG, CTT, AGA, you delete the first A, reading frame shifts, and it becomes GGC, TTA, and so on. So well, that's going to um, fuck everything up. It fucks everything up downstream. So again, geneticists know that large gene deletions are pretty rare, right? We don't suffer them uh, very well. So once the uh, GLO pseudogene was found in humans, they started looking for it in other primates, right? Ah. Here's a prediction, right? If we're closely related to these guys and all of us need vitamin C, and we found the pseudogene, a gene that's been knocked out in humans, I bet they're going to be there in other primates, our closest relatives. Sure enough... The same single deletion frame shift mutation that inactivated vitamin C in humans is found in chimpanzees, macaques, and orangutans. Are you saying we used to be able to synthesize our own vitamin C like we do with vitamin D? Yes. It was, it was not a vitamin. <laughs> oh, my God. Point. We uh, wouldn't have scurvy. So, exactly. So, the same thing occurs with our sense of smell, right? About 70% of our genes for recognizing odors are non-functional pseudogenes. That's why we can't smell as well as, say, a a dog, right? Mice and and marmosets have about the same amount of genes for recognizing odors, but all of theirs are functional. (laughs) Fucking marmosets. 70% of ours have been knocked out. On the other end of the spectrum, the dolphin, right, which isn't a fish, it's descended from land mammals, has about the same amount of genes as us for odor receptors and mice and marmosets. But none of them work. Not a single fucking odor receptor gene is active in the dolphin. They're all pseudogenes. Well, they can't smell. They'd, uh, they'd suck in water it's and drown. The same, it's this exact same uh, mechanism as vitamin C in us. We, we were probably in a vitamin C-rich environment. Uh, if, we, if we weren't, then knocking out that pseudogene would have killed the, the primate of scurvy before it could have reproduced, right? right. So if we're in a vitamin C-rich environment – Natural selection is not going to even notice that we're not making vitamin C. So the dolphins uh, must have been in an environment where it wasn't necessary to smell at all, right? And so, bam, every single one of their uh, odorant receptor genes are knocked out. Anyway, there, there are many other pseudogene examples. Uh, RT6 protein that's expressed in the surface of T lymphocytes. Galactosyl transferase, uh, tyrosinase for pigment formation. All of these pseudogenes either predicted by evolutionary theory or they fit neatly into the theoretical framework of evolutionary theory. Uh, no special ad hoc explanation is required. This is, this is a natural outgrowth of the theory. It's, again, hard to understand how pseudogenes fit into a creationist model, right? Why, for example, would Adam's body stop producing ascorbic acid, vitamin C, after the fall, right? Why would Adam's descendants be subject to scurvy because Adam ate an apple? Why wouldn't God simply let them know to eat a lot of fresh fruit or to avoid long sea voyages, right, to prevent scurvy? God doesn't tell them shit. (laughs) If pseudogenes do fit naturally into creationist models, why weren't they predicted by creationists before they were discovered? And and why would God remove the dolphin's sense of smell because Adam ate an apple? (laughs) Oh, because dolphins are assholes. (laughs) 
Really? Everybody thinks they're great, but... What in the creationist model of the universe would predict that? Immediately, they jump to the fall, right? Well, it's got it's decay. It's, it's got to have something to do with the fall, because mm-hmm. that's when the second law of thermodynamics started, was in the fall, in the garden. Uh, I just I don't see why it would randomly knock out genes for, for example, vitamin C production or carbohydrates on cell membranes. Why? What the fuck is that? Can you give me a mechanism for why eating that apple and disobeying God affects the uh, pigment formation in mammals? Now, when I have brought this up, uh, all I got in response was that was that junk DNA does it doesn't mean it's junk, man. It, it still has other use. I mean, I can. There was no other. I got nothing else. Right. They the, the conversation stopped. I was like, "What? That's, I'm not talking about. What are you talking about?" <laughs> they, they don't get the argument. This is no. this is a gene that once coded for something. This was an active gene. It was knocked out by a mutation and no longer codes for that. It doesn't function as that gene anymore. So again, if we are created separately from the primates, right, from the orangutans, which are created separately from, say, guinea pigs and other mammals, why would uh, God separately include non-functional DNA, the same non-functional DNA in all of the primates? And then in guinea pigs, who also need vitamin C, a different non-functional uh, gene that was inactivated by a different mutation. Why? It's, it's all God's creation, man. We're all the same. Right. I sound same, like a hippie. Same blueprint. <laughs> he just carried over all the fucking errors of the entire primate blueprint. He just copied them straight over. Well, it's kind of like when you're making cookies and you, and you fuck up the uh, the dough, you know? The dough? Is that what it's called? Yeah, cookie dough. Yeah. And then you're just like, fuck, just fucking make the cookies, you know? Fuck I'll still eat them. I'll just, I'll just make eight batches of this. <laughs> I'll just keep making them. It's the worst metaphor I've ever made, I think. <laughs> All right, before we get to my favorite argument for the evidence of evolution, uh, what's your – what's number four? What do you got? I have yet another evidences of evolution. Um, we've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for this the whole episode, Chuck. Duck penises. Duck but penises? How can that I don't possibly to, be evidence for evolution? I don't want to be sexist here. Also, duck vaginas, <laughs> which I did not see coming. So duck penises and vaginas – they are amazing examples of what evolution will do with just millions of years to just fuck around. Um, <laughs> it's like an arms race, isn't it? <laughs> it is exactly what's going on here. Penises and vaginas. Now, as with chromosomes, got to look at a little backstory. Also, you're going to want to know this anyway. Um, the male duck normally – Unlike he- chromosomes, yeah. <laughs> this is actually interesting information. <laughs> hey, I love the chromosome. Anyway – um, the male duck normally keeps his penis inside out in a sack inside its body. Yeah, same as me. That, yeah. Now, when he's ready to mate, it explodes outwards. It, and you can look this up. You can you can literally like go to YouTube and uh, and Google duck penises and watch this happen. It's impressive. Yeah, we've all seen it, Matt. Oh, I guess I was just all right. Um, got me a little who, bothered. If you know. who hasn't seen duck penises explode. <laughs> Outwards to an impressive 20-centimeter length. Is that really impressive, Matt? <laughs> it sounds impressive. Um, now, so with ducks, 
Many of them form bonds between males and females that last for a whole mating season. But rival males often uh, violently force themselves on the females. To gain the edge in these conflicts, males have, a lar- have evolved, that is, uh, large corkscrew phalluses, and they're lined with ridges and backward pointing spines. Jesus, you know. like a fish hook? <laughs> for her pleasure. Oh my god. <laughs> So this would allow them to deposit their sperm further into a female than their rivals. So how does this work? Um, So not only does the male have a corkscrew penis, but the female has a corkscrew vagina. That's called the opposite direction of the male. Now, the duck penis is not actually stiff when it's erect. It's flexible. This is a reverse corkscrew vagina. Yes. You got a corkscrew. I got a reverse corkscrew. (laughs) That penis is corkscrewing in the wrong way. Yeah, that's how it has to be, because she wants to uh, fend him off, essentially, because he's an asshole. Because the majority <laughs> of duck intercourse is essentially rape. Yes, uh, and that's why the duck penis is flexible. It has to be to make it down the female's vagina. Now, if a male duck tries to force itself upon a female that's not being receptive, the female can stiffen up. Uh, she can make it very difficult for the male penis to enter fully. Uh, the male will still ejaculate, of course, because we do. Uh, but it will not be all the way down into the vagina. That will thus limit contraception. So basically what you're saying is when a duck female gets raped, her body has ways of shutting down that process. She can shut it down. Oh, see, that's what he was talking about. That's what he was talking about. It was, ducks. Right, he's talking about ducks. Now, how does anyone get a duck uh, pregnant? Well... If the female is receptive, she can relax. She sticks her butt up in the air. This allows the male to more easily penetrate to the full length. Whoever gets the fuller length has a better chance of um, impregnating that female duck. And I will never watch another Donald Duck cartoon the same again. <laughs> Just, knowing, Just knowing he's not wearing any pants because That's his penis is sucked right. up into the inside of his body anyway. But that- well, he's not wearing, he's not wearing pants because it might explode outward at any second. <laughs> That fucking 20 centimeter duck dick is ready to shoot out at any time. And it, depending on whether Daisy's receptive or not, they might yeah, have little yeah. Huey, Louie, and Dewey ducks. They didn't, um, well, that's where they came from. Uh, <laughs> they never, although they were just his cousins, weren't they? I don't know. Nephews? I think they're nephews. nephews. Yeah, nephews. They never explained that. Uh, it's, we don't really want to know. Nephews aren't wearing <laughs> pants either. Neither is Daisy. None of these fucking ducks wear any pants. No. Well, you know, Bugs Bunny was totally naked all the time. That's I mean, true. You know. Mickey no wears shorts. Goofy's got pants on. What the fuck is wrong with all the ducks? Because <laughs> dogs, dogs, their stuff just hangs out. <laughs> dogs are, dogs have a, you know, they have a sense of decorum. They keep it up inside them. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, that's just sucked inside. There's nothing, nothing to see, really. Oh, hence, no pants. Again... In order to believe special creation, you'd have to think that the good Lord designed a 20-centimeter corkscrew ridged and backward-facing spined penis. For her pleasure. For duck intercourse. (laughs) And then gave the female duck a reverse corkscrew vagina, just in case those uh, ducks get any ideas. Yeah. Yeah, I could totally believe that. I remember reading that in the Bible. <laughs> and on the seventh day, God created the corkscrew penis. But only for the ducks, because only they were worthy. With fucking 
alien spines facing backwards. There is a lot of freaky sex shit going on in the animal kingdom. Uh, it's none of yeah. it requires special creation. That god is a weird fucking dude. He is freaky. He likes to get his freak on. Just sitting there on his drawing board. <laughs> hmm, how about a corkscrew penis this time? All right, Matt, let's move on to my favorite evidence. Your this favorite? One's, this one's great. I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. Uh, your favorite evidence of all the evidences for evolution would have to be the banana. It's a fossil. It's tiktalic. 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 I think it's tiktalic. Tiktalic. Uh, the reason, Matt, that. this is so good. You remember when this made headlines, right? <clears throat> Missing link yeah. found transition from water dwelling to uh, land dwelling, right? From fish to amphibians. And the, the picture of that kind of <laughs> flat-headed uh, fossil with the eye holes on top. Right. And the little bendy where's, fins. Where's your missing link, evolutionist? Uh, <laughs> I got here your it is. missing link right here. <laughs> um, so uh, basically, this is all – I highly recommend uh, a book called Your Inner Fish by Neil Shubin. Uh, this was discovered by Shubin and company, and he describes this process in detail in the first chapter. Uh, basically, uh, all fossils that we find uh, are water-dwelling. Every fossil we find is water-dwelling until about 365 million years ago. Uh, and then we find land-dwellers, right? So at uh, 385 million years ago, all we have are fish with fins, conical heads with no necks, scales. 365 million years ago, we find amphibians with necks, ears, four legs, right? So uh, Shubin's crew split the difference. They said, what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, th rocks that are about 375 million years old, right? And right. That's where we expect to find the transition between fish and land dwellers. This is the uh, emergence of, of amphibians or the, the tetrapods. So once uh, you've nailed down the time, you start looking for rocks that are likely to harbor fossils. So sedimentary rocks like limestone, sandstones are ideal because they're formed by gentle processes, right? You just kind of lay down some silt uh, as opposed to, say, volcanic rocks. Uh, which are formed by violent heated processes, which even if there were fossils in the rocks, they'd be destroyed. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, from a geology textbook, they spotted three regions that looked like promising sites to find an example of this water-to-land transition. One was the eastern uh, United States, which they'd spent several years looking at. Anyway, they're in Pennsylvania. Um, but unfortunately, the most promising sites are populated, uh, it's, it's hard to uh, demolish someone's house so you can look for fossils, right? And so what you have to do is you have to visit the road cuts <laughs> and look at the rocks along the side of the road, fucking dodge semis right. and shit. Um, so they didn't like doing any more of that. Eastern Greenland was the second one, but that had already been heavily picked over by paleontologists. It was studied uh, in excruciating detail already. Uh, and there were a series of islands in the Arctic. Uh, that, that were pretty much uh, virgin territory. They're pristine. So they chose the Arctic. Nice. This was in 1999. They spent six years uh, in the island studying the area, gathering specimens, until they found a promising fossil in 2004, right? Like the last year that they, their grant was going to run out. Uh, this one had a flat head instead of the conical fish heads, right? It had a neck to separate the head from the body because fish, you know, you move the head, the body moves, Right. Uh, in this fossil, you had a neck so that you could move the head independently of the body. It, it uh, did have scales like fish, 
and fins instead of limbs. So it looks like kind of a combination, an actual transitional fossil, right? It's got right. parts of both. Inside the fins, you actually find shoulder and elbow joints and, and kind of parts of a wrist. So this was uh, Tiktaalik. So the important part of this story isn't that scientists found yet another transitional fossil. We got shit tons of those, right? It's that they actually used the theory of evolution to predict when in the rock layers uh, and where on Earth they'd find this particular transitional fossil. And then they went out and dug for six years and actually found it. So I want you to think about that for a second. If the creationists are right and a global flood explains all the rock layers is being rapidly deposited in a single event about 4,400 years ago, right, during Noah's flood. Uh, what are the chances that evolutionary scientists could predict in what rock layer and what part of the globe they'd find a particular fossil, right? If evolution wasn't true and the creationists are telling the truth, how could these guys find this particular fossil? If the creationists were right, they'd be looking in the wrong spot. Place. Right. If this was indeed a world <laughs> mod by sin, how in the fuck can evolutionists uh, predict not only the fossil they're going to find, but where and in what rock layer they can find it? And why can't creationists achieve something similar, right? Why can't their model lead them to predict anything at all and then actually go out in the field and find it? Because, because they don't have to. There's nothing for them to predict. <laughs> they can't. It's not that they don't have to. It's that they can't. They're physically incapable. Their theory doesn't lead them to any sort of predictive power, right? The biggest question, if you bring up this story, this is a great story about how science works, right, and the predictive power of science and evolutionary theory. The biggest question for creationists about the story of Tiktaalik, why are atheistic evolutionists so much better at deciphering the mind of God than you creationists? I don't know, but I have, I have a counter-argument. Shoot. Actually, it's not really a counter-argument. It's more like what I was trying to research about this for counter-arguments, just out of curiosity what creationists say. So they say things like, are there really air-breathing and walking fish? Well, we have those now. Uh, there's They're certain fish. Lungfish. <laughs> lungfish, right. And there's fish that that with the help of their pectoral fins cross expanses of land. Evolutionists call this walking. Um, <laughs> yet, none of these curious fish are considered by evolutionists to be ancestors of tetrapods. Okay, so I hate when they point to a modern uh, creature <laughs> and they say, well, why isn't this a transitional species? <laughs> yeah. Because it exists now, you fucking idiot. They can't even think – they can't even wrap their heads around what a phylogenetic tree is, what that cladistic analysis of, of ancestor organisms and descendant organisms is. That's why they point to shit like this where they say, well, how come these modern fish and amphibians, uh, why don't you think that they're predecessors? Because they're not found in the fucking rock layers, assholes. Right. Here's where they appear. We can show here. Okay, nothing, nothing. Here's where they appear in the rock layer. That's too modern to be a descendant of this one. If we find them in previous rock layers, we will then revise our view. That's the beauty of science. As more evidence comes in, we get closer and closer to the truth. As opposed to just assuming a conclusion and trying to ad hoc everything that comes in after the fact. Yes. I've had I've had I've had creatures tell me why aren't bats considered 
transitional species between uh, mammals and birds. <laughs> I said, because their lineages have already split. They exist now. They're mammals, you fuckers. But they can fly. They are they mammals. Can... <laughs> it's the Bible that thinks they're birds. <laughs> but they fly, Chuck. I love how the Bible classifies bats in with birds. Fucking, uh, there's your phylogenetics from uh, about six or 700 B.C. Flying, 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 bird. Wings, bird. Bird. Uh, so, What's that fish doing? Is that fish flying? That's uh, a bird. Matt, other evidence we could have talked about but didn't mention the uh, no. Lenski experiment results. Uh, nylon uh, digestion by bacteria. The right? Lenski experiment, Chuck, it's still E. coli. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that bacteria evolved the ability to digest nylon shit that didn't even exist before, like, what, the 1950s? Uh, nested hierarchy of species, geographic distribution of species, transposed. That one I love. On and on and on and on. We could go. This is just a, a tiny portion. But this stuff, I think, it, it can be grasped fairly easily and with a minimum of explanation uh, translated into uh, a, an argument that you can advance when you're uh, opposed by these creationist morons who don't accept evolution. There you have it. There's your evidences. So that's it. Go forth and argue, minions. Remember, duck penis. And reverse corkscrew vagina. Awesome. 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 Awesome.